Well, good morning, church. As Tim said, our reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Phil, thanks so much for reading. Friends, it'd be great if you had that passage open with you. Sorry, I think that's me. also find an outline uh, towards the back of the order of service that might be helpful for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of Christ. As we received Christ Jesus the Lord, please teach us now to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, abounding with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to completely transform our society. In this letter, Paul has already highlighted how the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing. That's from chapter 1, verse 5. If we go back to Acts chapter 17, uh, we find where Jason hid Paul and his fellow workers as uh, the mob in Thessalonica is trying to uh, lynch them. And the mob complained that these men have turned the world upside down and they've come here also saying that there is another king, Jesus. We want to see the gospel turn our world upside down, don't we? We long to see it completely transform human society across politics and economics and business and sexuality and charity and family and education and healthcare and all the other areas that make up our society. But often I think we only expect that transformation to happen in what we consider to be the big and and highly visual ways. You know, when a a Christian politician is elected or when a proposed law change fails because thousands of Christians have signed an online petition or perhaps because of the sustained efforts of a Christian lobby group 
And while all of those things are great and we thank God for them, the Bible seems to suggest that the real power of the gospel to completely transform society is right here with us in this room today. It's quite simply the power of the gospel to transform our society happens at the grassroots level, starting from the bottom up, as it transforms one Christian's relationship with another Christian and with another Christian and with another Christian. And as the church then grows in the gospel, in Christ, it has a subversive effect on the world in which the church exists. And these gospel-transformed relationships of the church become the gospel-transformed relationships of our homes, the gospel-transformed relationships of our places of work and beyond. And so, yes, the power of the gospel to transform society happens right here with us as Christ's church. Now, I had planned to cover all of this section this morning up to 4 verse 1, But there's a thread running all the way through from the beginning of chapter 3 about what the gospel means for how we relate to one another in Christ. Um, Douglas helped us last week to to really see that in verse 1 to 14. But I felt that it was important to slow down here in these few verses, verse 15 to 17, just to give us time to properly understand what they mean, but also to give us time next week to properly cover the issues of of marriage and parenting and the very thorny issue of slavery as well. So um, I hope you'll join us again next week for that. So today we're just looking at verse 15 to 17, and it'd be great if you had uh, the, the outline with you there. <clears throat> well, what we have in these three verses is a very clear summary of how the church of the Lord Jesus must be shaped by the Lord Jesus. Remember, there's a key theme of the letter to the Colossians, and that's the fact that as Christians, we are in Christ. It's very important to remember that little, those two little words, in Christ. Paul first uses it in in chapter 1, verse 2, right at the beginning, and he keeps reappearing throughout the letter. So in 1, verse 2, he says, we are brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. 1, verse 4, our faith is in Christ. When we're saved by the Lord Jesus, we're quite literally saved into Christ. So that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, verse 14 of chapter 1. We were hopeless and helpless sinners. At 122, we've been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In 2 verse 20, we died with him. 2 verse 12, we've been buried with him. And 3 verse 1, we've been raised with him. 3 verse 3, he is our life. And our life is hidden with him in God, 3 verse 4. And as God fills Jesus completely, we have been filled in Christ, 3 verse 10. Our future hope is to be presented mature in Christ, 1 verse 28. Our life now is to consist in walking in Christ, rooted and built up in him, 2 verse 6 and 7. Christians are those who are literally in Christ. And the double blessing is that as we are in him, 
so he is also in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 verse 27. It's true of me, and it's true of you. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. What does this mean for our relationships together? Well, I I was never very good at maths at school, but I remember something from maths classes, and if we have what's called an equilateral triangle, which I hope is up on the screen, there we go, all the sides of the triangle are the same length, and each inside angle will be the same. Sometimes there'd be an exam question where you're given some of the information, you've got to find out what the missing side is, how long it is, or something. But imagine a triangle like that, but one where God is at the top, and you or I at the other two points. And imagine for a moment that each side is in Christ. And imagine that each inside angle, the relationship of the sides to each other, is determined by Jesus. So if my relationship with God is in Christ... Your relationship with God is in Christ. Let's do some gospel maths, shall we? If my relationship with God is in Christ, your relationship with God is in Christ, what is our relationship to each other? It's only one answer. The answer is quite simply that we are in Christ. And there's my graphic disappearing. That's okay. We are in Christ. And because of that, friends, being in Christ to one another, determined by Jesus, it must also shape everything about how we relate to one another as the body of Christ, as his church. And in these three verses, Paul actually shows us three ways in which the church must be shaped by the reality of being in Christ together. With his peace, with his word, and with his name. And then we're going to all tie it together at the end with the sustained note of thankfulness that Paul keeps coming back to. So let's look at the peace that we have with Christ. I'm sure you're also watching with horror the events unfolding in Ukraine at the moment. Of course, the goal of all involved is peace, isn't it? But, of course, peace on the victor's terms. But peace nonetheless. And, you know, what we've seen is that shared ethnicity, shared ethnic heritage, shared language, shared culture, it isn't enough to secure peace, is it? Shared history is not enough to secure peace. Peace is being pursued variously through war, through might, through fear, through diplomacy, through economic sanctions, and through isolation. And we're still not there. We pray for peace, and we hope it'll happen soon, an end to the bloodshed and the mindless destruction. But history teaches us that human beings are not very good at peace. An English journalist assessed the last century and said, taken as having begun in 1914, it was a century of almost unbroken war with few and brief periods without organized armed conflict somewhere. In fact, if you look at the history of the last hundred years and and over, Each peace deal seems to have only laid the foundations for the next conflict, as each generation only seeks to achieve peace in our time. The truth is that left to ourselves, we're not very good at peace. And sadly, the same is too often true of the church. Excuse me. Disagreements, factions, taking sides, character assassination, 
veiled accusations, gossip, rumor, church meetings turning into absolute carnage as members try to devour one another, eat one another alive. It all started with a suggestion to change the carpet color. You know, one of the most awful things is a church where there's no peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of us know what this is like. We've been in those meetings. It's even happened here. But this unrest among Christians is not just a problem because of the damage it does. It's a problem because it bears no resemblance to the church that Christ died for. In verse 15, we're told that we are called to peace. In fact, it's Christ's peace to which we are called. Remember, Paul started his letter with a greeting of peace in 1 verse 2. The peace that comes directly from God, our Father himself. In 1 verse 20, we're reminded that what God did when he sent his son Jesus to die, making peace by the blood of his cross. This wasn't simply a peace between people. This was peace between Rebels like you and I on the one hand, and a God who has the right to rule over the universe that he has made, and everyone in it. And Jesus' death on the cross made peace between me and God, a God who was rightly hostile to me as his enemy. Now think of our triangle again. If my relationship with God is based on the peace that Jesus bought for me at the cross, and your relationship with God is based on the peace that Jesus bought for you at the cross, then what must our relationship to each other be based on? Well, there's only one answer, isn't there? It's the peace that Jesus bought us at the cross. Which is why in verse 15, the Bible says, we are called to the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts together as one body. In the letter to the Ephesians, which is a letter very closely related to the letter to the Colossians, Paul puts it like this. He says, For Jesus himself is our peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 16. And so, yes, the body of Christ, the church, is meant to demonstrate to the world a peace between people that the world can only ever wish for, a peace that cannot be achieved on the end of a gun or the end of a presidential pen, but only through a bloody cross on a hillside outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And you know, when our, our family and friends, they look at a church where members are in conflict with each other, they understandably dismiss the gospel as powerless and inauthentic. But when they see a church, he remembers first that they are in Christ together. And when they remember what he has achieved for them, and when they take their disagreements first to the cross, and even if they don't leave them there, they handle them in an entirely different way. That does not go unnoticed. It's powerful, it's authentic, and you know it's immensely attractive to a world that feels constantly disappointed by the pursuit of worldly peace. And so, yes, one of the things, one of the ways in which Christ shapes his church is with his peace. Second way that the church is shaped by being in Christ is with his word. 
Of course, it's important to have uh, faithful biblical preaching as the word of Christ is proclaimed. Paul spends himself in that ministry because he knows it's vital if Christians are going to be presented mature in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 28. But here in chapter 3, he hints at something deeper. The Bible hints at something much deeper. Have a look with me at verse 16 in your Bible. Excuse me. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One thing worth noticing here is how Paul is not speaking to church leaders alone. He's actually talking to the whole body together. This might come as a surprise because what it means is that each and every member of the church has the responsibility to let the word of Christ dwell in themselves richly and to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Each of us needs to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by listening to faithful teaching and preaching, by spending time in his word ourselves, asking good questions of it and finding good answers, memorizing scripture. And then that word by which we relate to God in Christ becomes the word by which we relate to one another in Christ. And again, it's like our triangle, isn't it? Teaching is about helping someone understand something better. Admonishing is a word we don't use much anymore, but it it means something like warning or challenging. In Christ's church, it means the delicate and prayer-soaked work of noticing when a brother or sister in Christ is in danger of losing their grip on who they are in Christ or what they have in Christ. It's drawing alongside them to take them back to God's word, to the gospel, to warn and challenge them for the sake of their growth in Christ. Of course, this kind of ministry to each other is only possible when we have the peace of Christ operative in the body and when we have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly so that we know what part of God's word to bring one another to and how to use it. Uh, One commentator hits the nail on the head. He says, if Christ is your Lord, then his word is your treasure. His message shapes and directs all conversations and relationships between all members of his church. But, you know, it's so easy to talk about anything but God's word when we're together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that's true for myself. Because of that, can I, can I perhaps admonish you today? And I say this to myself too, but when you go out for morning tea today, don't just have the easy conversations about your kids and the weather and the news and your ailments and your Easter holiday plans. Don't even ask each other, what did you think of the sermon? Because too often that's just code for what did you think of the preacher? And honestly, I'm not worth the airtime. Instead, try and have that deeper conversation, those conversations that start with, so what did you learn from God's word today? Or what did you find most encouraging from today's passage? Or even have the humility to say, you know, I still don't really understand verse 16. What do you think of that? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. 
Obviously, morning tea is a great time for these sorts of conversations. I'll say even better is if you join a midweek grace community group uh, where you're intentionally meeting with believers in the week, uh, growing together as a, as a body, having these kind of conversations, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly together. If you're not part of a group, please get in touch with us. We'll help you find one. Or just ask around. Eventually, you'll find someone who's part of a group. We'll be happy to invite you along. But Paul points out a very surprising way we can teach and admonish one another as the word of Christ dwells in us richly. In fact, we've already been doing it this morning. And that's by singing together. And not just singing together, but singing to each other. So verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Did you know that our singing together in church is not just a break uh, in between the prayers and Bible readings? And it's not just a nice thing for Christians to do together, those Christians who like that sort of thing. Singing together is actually a command from God, not just to praise and worship him, but to teach and encourage one another. So our singing always has a vertical and a horizontal dimension. That's why we make it our business here at Grace to choose songs that are, that are biblically rich, that are musically excellent, and which draw from the, the best of the old and the best of the new, and also very singable, that we can sing them together. We have a faithful and gifted music team which serve this ministry every week. And, you know, I love being able to sing together as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I can't sing. That's usually the response that we get when we start talking about these things. Um, Australians are not known for their enthusiasm for gathering together in large numbers to sing. Two things I'll say to that. The first is that God never commands you to do something without giving you the means to obey. He thinks your voice that he has given you is good enough to praise his name. He thinks it's good enough to be used in church to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. But you might be worried that the sound of your voice raised in song will be less than encouraging. People fear that, yes, they have a moving voice, but that means that people move away from them when they sing. <laughs> Did you know that there's a fascinating quality to the way that God has made the human voice? And that's that the more voices there are singing, no matter how good a singer people are, the better they sound. It's the reason why a top 40 hit can leave you cold, but when thousands of burly Liverpool fans are singing You'll Never Walk Alone together, perhaps slightly lubricated at the time, that that just gives you goosebumps. It's because it's not the quality of the individual voices that matters, it's the, the collective quality of the voices as they're raised in song together. God's made our voices like that. I think if we're all resolved to raise our voices together, regardless of what we think of the pipes the good Lord has given us, we might be surprised and indeed encouraged in Christ as a result. Singing together is actually a way that God expects his church to be shaped by the word of Christ. So let's move on to our third way in which Christ shapes his church. So we've seen how Christ shapes his church with his peace, with his word. The final way is with his name. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. As Christians, we literally carry the name of Christ. Originally, Christian was a derogatory term, meaning little Christs, as in who do they think they are. But yes, because we are in Christ, we represent his name. And so when Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, it really comes down to asking a simple question that when my friends and family see me, in fact, when our friends and family see us, do they see Jesus? It's the way I involve myself in the life of my church, worthy of being done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's simply done for the sake of our own name. The way I do my job, the way I talk to my family, is it worthy of being done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Even this thing that I say that I'm doing or saying in the name of the Lord Jesus, is it actually worthy of being done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Or am I misappropriating his name? Of course, it goes without saying that the body of Christ must be genuinely shaped by his name in the way we relate to one another and to the way we relate to those outside. We have no business calling ourselves Christ's church if we do not do things worthily and rightly in his name. What's interesting, though, is Paul doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts here. I expect us he wants to avoid those human precepts and self-made religion, the things he critiques in chapter 2. So instead, he just says, whatever you do. In other words, this is not about law. This is about prayerfully figuring out for yourself what Jesus has done for you, what it means to live out that reality. So Jesus' peace, Jesus' word, Jesus' name. But we'll see here there's another thing that kind of runs through all of this. In music, there's a a thing called a pedal note. Uh, Musicians will be familiar with this. It's a note which is sustained, kind of a bass note, that goes all the way through the entire piece of music. And here we have Paul doing a similar thing. And thankfulness is like that pedal note all the way through Colossians and particularly here. Thankfulness is central to Paul's message to these Colossian Christians. And it's central to the Bible's message to us here as well. Uh, As you read Colossians, as we've read it together, have you noticed how often Paul talks about thankfulness? Uh, When we had the, the Grace Community Group Leaders meeting at the beginning of the term, I think we counted at least eight times that we could find the word thankfulness in this four-chapter letter. Thankfulness, I think, is really about two things. It's about credit and contentment. By credit, I mean thankfulness makes us recognize where things come from. Who gets the credit? Makes us recognize that, we, that what we have being in Christ is all from God and that we wouldn't be in Christ at all if it was up to us, if it wasn't for the grace shown to us. Therefore, as we live in Christ, thankfully, we continue to point back away from ourselves and back towards the God who has made all this possible in Christ. So that's credit. Secondly, contentment. By contentment, I mean the thankfulness makes us realize that in Christ we actually have it all, that we're not waiting for something, that we're not... Uh, and we haven't been shortchanged in any way. That there's nothing else to be gained by our own efforts. Seen from another angle, thankfulness teaches us that we live in him and walk in him, not so that we may be in Christ, 
but because we already are. You know, practicing gratitude is quite trendy at the moment. A lot of social media posts with, you know, hashtag grateful. It's a very healthy practice because it teaches us to notice the good we have and to appreciate it. In fact, there's even evidence that gratitude can rewire your brain to make you uh, more mentally healthy. But too often, this sort of gratitude that we hear about is it's a bit like putting a thank you note in a bottle and tossing it into the sea and hoping someone picks it up one day. Now you hear of people being thankful to the universe or just, you know, I'm just thankful. Friends, we know a personal God who has personally, from his wealth, blessed us out of our socks, blessed, uh, personally forgiven our sins forever, and personally welcomed into his family as his own beloved sons and daughters. When we show gratitude, we actually have someone to say thank you to. So yes, thankfulness is a means to contentment in what we have in Christ. What kind of impact do you think we would have on our society if we didn't just live out the peace that Christ has brought us together, that we didn't just speak the word of Christ to one another, didn't just honor the name of Christ in everything we do together, but what if we did it in a spirit of deep gratitude, thankfulness? What do you think the world would make of that if we lived out our lives as incredibly grateful people for what God has done for us in Christ? Grateful for what we have in Christ. Grateful for his peace. Grateful for his word. Grateful for his name. Grateful for his body, the church, although it will never be perfect. Grateful even for our individual brothers and sisters in Christ. Even the ones we find hard to get along with. Do we, when we pray, actually say to God, God, thank you for Bill. Thank you for Susan. Now, we have a a wonderful uh, example here in Colossians, a model for thankfulness back in chapter 1 where Paul tells the Colossian church how he thanks God for them. You know, it might be a great starting point for your own prayers to go and read that again and reflect on it and see how that might shape your own prayers. But be warned, the spirit of thankfulness will not leave you unchanged. It might make you more content. I'm going to leave it there for today. We've been given enough to chew on for one morning, one week. And next week, we're going to continue straight on into how this passage then talks about uh, marriage, parenting, and, yes, slavery as well. So I hope you can join us for that. How about now, though, we pray? Our Lord and God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that the word of truth has come to us, is bearing fruit and increasing in us since the day we first heard it. Father, we thank you that you have given us. We thank you that once, though we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you've reconciled in his body by his death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him before you. Father, we thank you for the word of Christ that makes us mature in Christ. 
We thank you that we bear the name of Christ, that you count us worthy of that, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of the Lord Jesus himself. Father, by your Spirit, teach us to live out the reality of who we are in Christ. And as you do, Father, please change the world through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.